we're going to dig in. Uh, week three in our series on prayer. And speaking of college students being back, it's, it's around this time of year I start to think about what life was like when I was in college. And it's not like it was forever ago. Uh, I know I'm not that old, but I think specifically of the freshmen, <clears throat> you know, stepping foot on campus and just the season of change and transition therein. And one of the most challenging transitions to college for me was the food scene. I came from a home of a mother who was a tremendous cook. Like, everything she made was phenomenal. There was no such thing as leftovers in the Howell household because we always cleaned our plate. And when I went to college, I didn't have good food anymore, right? Like, the calf wasn't necessarily cutting it. You guys know how that goes. Uh, And most frequently, I would resort to the easier options like Jeff's Pizza in Ames. Anybody? Any Cyclones? Jeff's Pizza. Not necessarily good pizza, but it was easy. Uh, Sandwiches, you know, anybody can make a sandwich. Uh, But every now and then, I would miss home enough to say, I want to try and make something homemade. Bold strategy as a freshman in college. You can about guess how that went, right? Not very good. (laughs) I would try and make these homemade concoctions, and they would fall flat. I mean, the reality is, I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how challenging it could be. There were times that I just didn't plan well enough. I didn't have the ingredients that I actually needed, and the recipe was already started, so I just tried to make it work. And I'm also convinced that within several of my mom's recipes, she had a secret ingredient she didn't tell me about. Fairly convinced. I think she withheld that, so there's no way we could reproduce it. And you guys know what it's like to make something that has missing ingredients, don't you? It's not good. And here's what you end up doing. You try to force yourself to eat it. You, like, convince yourself you like it. But you don't. And you might eat it once or twice, but the rest of it's going to end up in the trash. And today, you might have noticed on your program, we are talking about the topic, Prayers for the Lost. And maybe you know already where I'm going with this. We're called to be a people that pray for the lost. People that don't know Jesus. And we all know somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Even saying that, you have names that come to mind. People that are not very distant from you. Close friends, family members, classmates, co-workers, neighbors, and beyond. Not to mention the more than 3 billion people across the world who have no access to the gospel. We all know people who are lost. And apart from the grace of God in their life, apart from the Spirit of God giving them a new heart, showing them that they cannot save themselves, but they need to trust in the finished work of Jesus, these people are lost They are separated from God. They are serving lifeless idols. They are enslaved to sin. And not only are they settling in this life, but they are on the path to destruction. And with that, we know deep within us, there ought to be this heart of prayer. There ought to be within us a posture that says, God, I want those people to know you. But if you're anything like me, your prayers for the lost are a lot like bad leftovers. You try to get yourself to do it, but you don't really like it, and it ends up in the trash. 
And so the question we should be asking is, what are the missing ingredients? What are the missing ingredients that we are lacking to have a tasteful, a delightful, thriving prayer life when it comes to praying for lost people? So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Would love for you guys to open your Bibles with me. We are going to find out here a couple ingredients that are going to help us have a thriving prayer life for the lost. And this book is written through the hand of a physician named Luke, who became a disciple of Jesus and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penned these words. And I've told people before, it's really a miracle that we have the Gospel of Luke because most physicians' handwriting is not legible. But somehow... There was a way by the Spirit of God, and we have the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel means good news. Luke is recounting the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And where we pick up in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has already given a clue as to who he is and what he's here for. He's performed miracles. He's asked his disciples, who do you think I am? And and Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of God. He actually foreshadows the fact that he's going to be crucified. In Luke 9, we see that Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. He knows that the time is coming where he would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And it's as we come to this place in Jesus' ministry, he's about to send out 72 disciples. Here's what Luke chapter 10, verse 1 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus is about to send these guys out to do gospel ministry. And before he does that, he wants to give them some simple instructions. Ellie and I took our boys on a scooter walk yesterday. And it's what you do when you are about to embark on a new journey. We took our kids and we put their scooters on the sidewalk and we said, Okay, Blaze and Leo... Here's what you need to do. We're going to go on a scooter walk. If mom and dad tell you to stop, what are you going to do? You're going to stop. Okay? And when you see an alleyway or a road, what are you going to do? You're going to stop. You're going to look both ways because we don't want you to get hit by cars. Right? And that's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to give marching orders here to his disciples. He knows he's sending them out on mission. But what he needs to do before that is tell them, hey, here's the marching orders for successful gospel ministry. And we're going to spend the majority of our morning in just one verse, the very next verse, and we're going, to, we're going to get an idea of two missing ingredients that are meant to spur us on to have a thriving prayer life when it comes to praying for the lost. Let's look at Luke 10, verse 2 together. And he, Jesus, said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, if you've been around Veritas for any amount of time, and you understand that we are a part of a network of churches called the Salt Network, maybe you have heard this verse before. You probably have. 1002, you see it on t-shirts, on bracelets, I'm wearing one. We've kind of like taken hold of this verse and said, God, let this be a mark of us. We want to be a people that pray at 10.02, we want to be a people that take this verse to heart and understand what God is calling us to do, to be a praying people. And within that, we see there are a lot of lost people in our world, and we want to be a people of prayer. 
We want to pray for more laborers, more mature disciples, more everyday missionaries, more lost people getting saved, and more complacent Christians getting in the game. But I think sometimes a familiarity can actually be to our detriment. It's kind of like talking to somebody from Colorado about the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> like, you go and you visit the Rocky Mountains, you're like, these are amazing, these are beautiful. Like, if I lived here, I would hike every day. I would never get sick of this. And you talk to the people that live there, and they're like, yeah, I guess they are all right, aren't they? It's like, they clearly have not been looking at Mount Trashmore every day, <laughs> right? <laughs> They've lost the wonder. They've lost the amazement at the mountains, and I think we can just blow by the wonder that is withheld in a single verse, Luke 10.2, which holds these two ingredients that I've already alluded to. We're going to walk through them together. You guys ready? All right. Here's missing ingredient number one. Faith that God has many people that are ready to repent. Faith that God has many people that are ready to repent. Did you see that in the text? Maybe you missed it. Let's look at it together. And he, Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If you're not super familiar with your Bible, you might miss that because it's an agricultural analogy. Jesus is speaking to a nation that is known for farming, and he uses this agricultural analogy to serve a point. He does this multiple times throughout his ministry. Maybe you're aware of the parable of the sower. Where he talks about, if you want to, you know, this is how the mission of God works. It's like we go and we scatter seed. That's the gospel, the word of God. And it falls on different soils, different hearts that respond in different ways to the truth. And the good soil bears much fruit, some 30, 60, 100 fold. He uses this agricultural analogy. But we actually see this harvest language show up in John 4. You've probably heard the story that precedes it. It's where Jesus meets a woman at the well. He shows her her sin, but much more than that, he shows himself to be the Messiah. She sees Jesus for who he truly is, and she leaves her bucket behind and runs into Samaria to say, come and see this man who's told me all about myself. Well, the disciples were not there during that interaction. They'd gone into the city to get some food, and they come back to Jesus and they tell him to eat something, and he gets into this conversation with them about the harvest. John 4, verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The disciples had to be so confused. They're like, harvest? That's four months away. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you only have eyes to see what's going on physically. I'm talking about a spiritual harvest. Yeah, you say it's four months until harvest. Get eyes from God. See what's happening spiritually. There are fields that are white for harvest, and here's what happens next. The Word of God says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
That's what Jesus is saying when he says the harvest is plentiful. There are lost people ready to repent. Can you see that spiritually? Do you believe that, Veritas? Do you believe that the gospel is not only good news, but the best news in the world? That it's not about what we have done for God, but what God has done for us in the person work of Christ. That we do not earn our way to him, but Jesus took on flesh, became perfect, and died in our place. That he didn't just stay dead, but that he resurrected so that any and all who believe in him would have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe? That there is nobody beyond the grace of God. We cannot out him. Do you believe that? I think we can say these blanket statements and be like, yes, yes, sign me up. That's so good. And then when we make it personal, it's like, okay. How about for your wayward son? How about for your angry parent, your selfish spouse, your alcoholic neighbor, your atheist classmate, your wealthy boss who has all the money in the world and is just caught up in his earthly passions, all of the good and moral people you know who have apparently no need for a savior? Do you think that the gospel is good for them? Do you think that the gospel is powerful for them? Do you think that people like that are actually ready to repent and ready to respond? We ought to. The harvest is plentiful. That's the promise given here in this text. But if you're like me, you have fear and you have doubts. And in fact, the Apostle Paul knew what it was like to have fear and doubt. When he was ministering in a city called Corinth... He was in this incredibly pagan city. It was the Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, known for their pleasure industry, like parties and prostitution and immorality and thievery. And, you know, even as Paul would come and teach in the synagogues, the religious elite would scare him out. They would try and tear him down. And Paul had to be asking this question, God, really? Like, I don't... I don't know if you can save people in Corinth. But here's what God says to Paul. The book of Acts chapter 18. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Get this. For I have many in this city who are my people. Wow. I have many, many people in this city who belong to me. Do we believe that? That God would not just say that to Paul in Corinth, but that he would say that to us this morning in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There are many in this city who belong to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. That should sweep us up and be like, yes, God, let's go. Let's make it happen. We want to see lost people repent. We want to see people be satisfied in Jesus, right? And then here's what Jesus tells them to do. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I mean, when I get jacked up on this idea of lost people repenting, here's how I would 
maybe think this passage goes. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, go into the harvest. Like, go do it, right? That's not what Jesus says. At least not initially. What does he say? He says, therefore, what? Pray. Therefore, pray. And he doesn't just say, therefore, pray. Because even as I've recited this verse, I've said, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. I missed a word. I missed a word, and it's an important word. It is to pray earnestly. To pray earnestly. I've been so challenged and convicted by this, you guys. That maybe I've been praying Luke 10 too, but I've been doing it wrong because I've missed one word. I haven't prayed earnestly. And you might say, what does that even mean? That's a good question. I mean, some of your Bibles might say beseech, but most of us don't talk like that (laughs) anymore. Um, A better word is beg. To beg God. And here's the missing ingredient, number two. Faith that God is willing to use are passionate prayers. That we would be a people that pray with passion. That we would beg God to save lost people. Beg. What comes to mind when you hear the word beg? Maybe a pet. For me, it's kids, right? Because I have three of them. Three, two, in seven months. I have kids that know how to beg. And uh, this is typically seen in two different ways. First is kids know how to beg with emotion. (laughs) They beg with emotion. This is seen most frequently around the dinner table. Uh, They know not to beg dad for his food because dad's not going to share his food. That's just true. So what do they do? They beg mom for her food. And they're not afraid to show emotion. They're not afraid to throw a tantrum. They're not afraid to cry or to scream. Or, and then when we rebuke them, they're not afraid to respond with emotion another way. To like cuddle up and say, Mommy, I love you. I'm so sorry. And give her a kiss. Like they are filled with emotion. But here's why. They want her food. <laughs> and they want it now. And I will say, church, this type of begging has a place in the Christian life. This emotional asking has a place in the Christian life. But oftentimes we don't necessarily feel this emotion because we haven't slowed down enough to actually comprehend what we're asking. We haven't slowed down enough to feel compassion. Right? In a companion text to Luke 10, Matthew 9, it says Jesus looked out at this crowd he was about to send the disciples into, and it says, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We haven't slowed down to recognize that these lost people are not just making a foolish decision to not follow Jesus. They are harassed and helpless. They are separated from God, and they have no way to him apart from the grace of God. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They are on the path to destruction. We have not slowed down enough to actually believe that. And we haven't slowed down enough to actually be grateful that that's not our story. As Christians, that that is not our story currently. 
Because as the disciples come back and they tell Jesus, look at everything we did. Look at all the powerful works, all the signs we got to experience. Here's what Jesus says to him in Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We haven't slowed down enough to just get caught up in this incredible reality that we, much like these people that we have compassion for, deserve death. We participated or even are participating in some of the same sins that they are choosing to participate in, but our story does not end in destruction, but in glory. Why? Because we love God so much? No! Because our names are written in the book of life because of what Jesus has done for us. We haven't slowed down to have enough compassion or gratitude to be moved with emotion. And I can think of at least two different people in our Bible who did do this. The first is Moses. We're not going to open up there, but if you're taking notes, Exodus 32. Moses comes down the mountain from this encounter with God, and Israel had made a golden calf. They start worshiping this false idol, and Moses is undone. He's just encountered God, and he's like, I cannot believe this great sin that Israel committed. And he goes to God, and here's what he says. Essentially, please forgive them or blot my name out of the book of life. (laughs) You think Moses had emotion? He's like, forgive them or send me to hell. That's what Moses is saying. That's insane. But we see it in the Bible. Paul, in Romans 9 and 10, he looks at his own people, Israel, And his heart is broken up over the fact that though they were God's chosen people, they turned their back on the God who loves them. And he says the same thing in in Romans 10. He's like, my heart's desire and my prayer is that they would have salvation. But in Romans 9, he says, I would wish myself a curse or cut off from Christ for their sake. This emotion has a place in the Christian life. But let's be real. Our prayers are not always filled with emotional highs, are they? And that doesn't necessarily mean that we lack passion. It might, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we lack passion. Because I can tell what people are passionate about, maybe less by the emotional highs and more about the consistent rhythm of their life. I went to school for diet and exercise. And people that are passionate about fitness make the right choices even when they don't want to. They eat healthy when it's not easy. They go to the gym when they're still tired because they're passionate about their health. One way that I've seen passion in our state, in the Midwest, Every time a country concert rolls around, Luke Bryant, I'm passionate. I'm going to go buy my cowboy boots and my plaid shirt. Yep, I'm a country fan. It's like, I haven't listened to country for a year. But sometimes we think that that's passion. It's a one-time act that anybody can do. We can all go buy cowboy boots and and a plaid shirt. Does that mean you're passionate? Not necessarily. So... Maybe we should also push back against the one-time emotional outpouring 
and ask the question, are we really passionate if we don't just pray with emotion, but if we don't pray endlessly? If it's not just about emotion, but persistence in prayer. I mean, kids know how to beg this way too, don't they? Any, any parents in here ever been to Disney World? Okay. Did your, parent, did your uh, kids beg for that? Probably. It's really not the happiest place on earth, if you didn't know that. Long lines, really hot, terrible food. Um, but a lot of times parents end up taking their kids to Disney World because here's what their kids do. They beg. And the kids don't really care if it's tomorrow or next week or next month. They're not wrapped up in timing. They just want it to happen. So they'll ask day after day, week after week, month after month, maybe year after year if you're still stubborn. (laughs) But eventually, they're opening tickets to Disney and they're going there. They were passionate about going. And actually, this is where I see Jesus teach about prayer frequently is less about emotional outpouring and more about endless asking. There's two different parables in in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 11, Luke 18, where he makes this point. Luke 11, he talks about this persistent neighbor who wants bread. And he wants bread in the middle of the night, right? And he's going, he's knocking on the door, and finally, he gets whatever he wants because he keeps asking. And then Luke 18, there's a persistent widow who goes before an unjust judge. She's been oppressed The unjust judge doesn't want to hear her case, but she keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. And finally, she gets justice. And what Jesus is trying to say here is, first and foremost, he is far more kind and caring than any earthly neighbor. He is far more just than any earthly judge. But Luke 18, verse 1, actually says that Jesus told this parable so that his people would pray and not lose heart. He wants us to be a people that pray persistently. And passion can be seen not just with emotion, but with persistence. So here's our missing ingredients, right? There are lost people ready to repent, and God's people are called to earnestly pray. Both of those things are true. There are people that want to turn from their sin to God... And God is telling us to talk to him about it. You could say it this way. God wants to save sinners and is willing to use our passionate prayers. That is amazing. That out of everything God can do to save people, to bring them from death to life, he's inviting us in to participate with him and say, would you pray? And don't just pray. Pray with passion. And so here's what we need to do this morning. A few applications for us. The first is acknowledge God's power. Acknowledge God's power. Not only does he say that the harvest is plentiful, he calls God the Lord of the harvest. That he's in charge. That he has final say. That he has people that he wants to save. And that nobody's too far gone. Do you believe that? I mean, look at your own life. Where has God brought you from? How did God save you? Through the finished work of Christ. 
And probably on the backs of hundreds, if not thousands, of other people's prayers. Acknowledge God's power. And from that place, I want you to identify a person. I mean, even on the front end of this message, you probably had someone come to mind. Write a name down. Write three names down, five names down. Write a name down of somebody close to you that you need to begin praying for. And if I could give you guys one more challenge, I'd like to do that. Are you guys okay with that? Okay, one more challenge. I mentioned over three billion people across the world who have no access to the gospel. Would we be a church that doesn't just pray for like those closest to us, but for those across the sea? Like we have missionaries in Thailand and Taiwan. I mean, we have relationships with pastors in China. Would we not just pray for those closest to us, but choose one people group that you can pray for consistently? If you need help, go to the Joshua Project online and find a people group that you can pray for consistently. And then lastly, we want to pray with passion. We want to pray with passion. As best as we we can, we want to slow down enough to be a people that are filled with compassion and gratitude, people that cannot believe that God has chosen to save us. People who are just blown away by the good news of the gospel, that we're filled with emotion. But even if the emotional high isn't there, would we just be a people that pray endlessly? I know it's cheesy, but like to actually set your alarm for 10.02 and to actually pray because you are not as spiritual as you think you are. (laughs) I know that because it's true for me. If I only prayed when I felt like it, I wouldn't pray a lot. But if I have an alarm go off reminding me to pray, I'm going to pray more consistently. Would you set your alarm for 10.02? If that's the middle of the workday, choose 7.02. It's 10.02 somewhere, right? Just... Set your alarm and pray. That's what I'm asking you to do. But I do want to give you a word of caution here, all right? Quick word of caution. The prayer here is for more laborers. And of course, on a week like this where we pray for the lost, it's like we want more lost people to become laborers, amen? We want more people that are not following Jesus to not just follow him but serve him forever and advance the kingdom. But you also have to acknowledge that as we pray for laborers, we're also praying for ourselves. That we would not be complacent and sit on the sidelines, but that we would be willing to go. Because that is the very next word in verse 3. Go. So, it's an invitation and it's a challenge. As you begin to pray to understand, God might call you to go. Now, there's a pastor from the 19th century by the name of E.M. Bounds. Many of you have maybe read some of his books. Well known for writing on the topic of prayer. And he has one quote I want to share with you this morning from his book, Power Through Prayer. He writes, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men saying, hey, it's a good thing to talk to lost people about Jesus. It's a better thing to talk to God about people. To go to God in prayer for the people you want to see come to know Jesus. And there's a guy who was alive and ministering around the same times that E.M. Bounds was writing by the name of D.L. Moody. How many of you have heard of D.L. Moody? 
Okay, he was a, a very well-known traveling evangelist. I mean, he would travel the world. He'd speak to crowds, sometimes up to 30,000 people. But what most people don't know about D.L. Moody is that he was a, a man of devout prayer. And he didn't just speak to 30,000 people. He talked to God for men. The story goes that he actually carried around a list of 100 names in his pocket every day of his adult life. 100 names. Friends that he knew that didn't know Jesus. And he would pray for them consistently. And when D.L. Moody died, here's what was true. 96 of the 100 people had repented and believed. Whoa, does prayer work? When I first heard that story, I felt so small. I was like, wow, 96 out of 100? But then the story continues. At D.L. Moody's funeral, these four remaining people each show up independently, and unbeknownst to them, all repent and believe because they were so moved by the memorial service. 100 out of 100. Wow. Prayer works. This is the power of prayer. And so the question I'm asking is, God, would you do it here? Would you do it amongst these people? These names that have come to mind and that we've written down this morning, God, would you do it with them? Would these people end up in a tank just like this one someday? Because they've repented and believed. And and would it be fueled in many ways by these prayers that we're praying today, this week, this month, this year, for the next decade, if it takes that, and more? And one of the sweetest things is how often people end up in a baptismal tank and they have no idea how many people have prayed for them. That is so glorifying to God. Because the reality is, people don't repent and believe because we're awesome, but because God is awesome. Because he's faithful. Because he's mighty to save. Amen? Let's pray together. God, you are the Lord of the harvest. You are Lord of all, and we recognize that you are holy, that we are not that you are perfect and that we have fallen short, but the reality is, God, you sent Christ to be perfect in our place, to take the punishment we deserve and to not just die, but to resurrect. Jesus, that you conquered sin, death, and Satan and that you have made a way for us to be restored to you. Help us to be a people that rejoice in our salvation. And from that place to be a people that have deep compassion for the lost around us. People that cannot stand the reality that there are people that would be separated forever from you. Would you stir within us this emotion we need to beg? But also when the emotion isn't there, God, give us the persistence we need to pray and not lose heart. And God, would you prove yourself faithful once again, time and time again by saving the lost, not for our sake, but for your name's sake, Jesus, because you deserve to be worshipped. We pray this in your name. Amen.